0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chemicals We Live With podcast, which is brought to in part by the New Brunswick Lung Association. And today, as always, we're going to be jumping into a wide, diverse uh, group of experts. And today's is Bill Jeffrey. And as always, I'm just going to jump right in and say, hello, Bill, who are you and what do you do?
1: <laughs> hello, Andrew. Um... I'm uh, the executive director and general legal counsel for a small non-governmental organization called the Centre for Health Science and Law based in Ottawa. And um, I've been doing sort of food nutrition, food safety law for about 27 years now. Uh, previously, I worked for a Washington-based organization called the um, Centre for Science and the Public Interest and um it's i mean it's primarily a public health mandate but we try to get changes to federal law to better protect uh people against um food related health threats and uh, we do some you know provincial and municipal work but um mostly federal and uh, some international because uh a lot of the uh, kind of sometimes the motivation for changing federal laws comes from uh international fora and um to a great extent um international trade agreements kind of govern what can be done in canada and so we have to be conscious of that
0: i very much appreciate someone who's wrestled food i i always have as a lot of people do anecdotes for when you're in job interviews or whatnot and famously Feels like a lifetime ago. I worked on something called Policy 711, which was the new nutrition and education policy uh, for um, elementary schools across the province of New Brunswick. Uh, and I, along with another colleague, put forward the idea that chocolate milk shouldn't be in public school systems. And it became an election issue, and it was one of the most hotly contested things I've ever said out loud in my
1: entire life. So uh, I appreciate we actually... someone who's
0: been through the ringer on something
1: similar. <laughs> Well, I, um, uh, we actually did a review in my previous um, job. Um, we did a review of school nutrition policies across the country, including New Brunswick, and we um, had a different uh, position on that. We thought it wasn't strict enough as really none of the nutrition criteria were. And I, I watched with amusement and uh, despair uh, seeing that elevated to such a big thing. And I, it's it's indicative one of the, the challenging things about um Food policy is, I think, at a very kind of um, kind of fundamental existential way. Even um, everyone sort of thinks they're an expert and you kind of have um, a psychological imperative to feel that you understand the food that you're putting in your body and feeding to your families. Because if you think it's just a crapshoot all the time, you'd be in a constant state of anxiety. Um, but the downside to that is people often make miscalculations and uh, and it's always tricky, you know, if you have to kind of, you know, like with school nutrition, I mean, I think everyone would agree we want to make sure that kids eat nutritious foods. Um, but if you have to kind of draw a line somewhere, there are going to be foods that are close to the line that people will be, uh, will bicker about. Um, and it's, it has to be managed properly. And I, I guess it just wasn't on that case. Oh no, like we, I,
0: myself and it was a colleague from the New Brunswick medical side were actually advocating to go harder, but mm-hmm. it, it literally became an election issue. Like chocolate milk was a provincial election issue. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. Well, I also remember around the same time, uh, not that election, but, um, something about, uh, I can't remember what it was called in New Brunswick. You had this late, um, late stage, um, French Immersion or something like that, yes. and the government was changing its policy, and then all of a sudden that was the big, biggest, most important issue, and oh yeah, and it's, 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 it sounded strange, but anyway. New Brunswick politics.
0: Yeah. So that almost leads into sort of the first big question, which is how, so we're talking a bit about the Chemical Management Plan, which is a national or federal backing. How did you come to get involved with the CMP?
1: Well, we—I um, mean, uh, the work that I did previously for the Center for Science and the Public Interest—we had some kind of interest in it because, in the beginning of the Chemical Management Plan, um, I can't remember exactly when it was, we were uh, hopeful that some of the food-related chemicals that we were most concerned about, particularly uh, azo dyes, these artificial dyes that you know have been associated with. Um, Uh, worsening the symptoms of um, uh, of hyperactivity and attention deficit disorders, um, that those would be included in it. And I I think at the time, the decision was to exclude those, and I'm not sure if they've been brought back into it. But but as I said, most of the work I did was about nutrition, except um, about four years ago, uh, well, it was more like three years ago, um, I was approached by someone from an organization called um, Safe Food Matters, based in Toronto, um, about getting involved in uh, some litigation related to pesticides. Um, and I learned a great deal about how Health Canada makes decisions about approving pesticides and reapproving them. They're supposed to undergo scientific review every 15 years, um, particularly with this one pesticide, uh, glyphosate, and the active ingredient Roundup. Mm. um and uh there have been some well-documented concerns about uh its potential to increase the risk of uh cancers particularly non-hodgkin's lymphoma and uh anyway in, in preparation for um what proved to be an unsuccessful bid to um get intervenor status i haven't done much litigation before and i think i tried to bite off more than i could chew with that case but um I learned a lot about how the scientific reviews are conducted and um, what I would describe as a lack of um, conflict of interest uh, safeguards. And uh, and anyway, I think I just, during the course of all of that, um, I think I just received um, an invitation from some of the Canadian Environmental Network or possibly the Brunswick Lung Association um, to get more involved in this toxic caucus because I think it was... It was um, an effort to kind of revive it. It kind of gone into um, into sort of abeyance a bit during COVID nineteen, and uh, I wasn't sure how much I wanted to do. I mean, it's kind of at the edge of our mandate, Um, but um, I asked to be on the mailing list, the you know the listserv, Uh, and I just became a little bit more uh, active in it.
0: It's kind of like all all great committees. You kind of get pulled in, and you, next thing you know, you're you're in it to win it, and you don't even know how you got there. I was yeah, pretty much the story of my career I started down the road, and now I'm here. Um, yeah. I'm going to skip over the third question because you're relatively new, but like for a lot of why I'm doing this is as I talked in before we started recording with the, sort of the average person in Canada. So why should an average Canadian care about the CMP, even if it isn't? perfect or even in current form depending on how everyone views it but why should they care about the chemical management plan
1: well i mean it's all about how um, people manage risks in their day-to-day lives and and uh and their uh, the i guess the main um objective is to ensure that uh chemicals that really do uh pose a risk and the risk is greater than uh, the benefit that they just are banned or somehow uh, removed from the marketplace. But lots of chemicals um, are very useful and there's a certain amount of risk that's inherent in using them, but you can take steps to mitigate the risk by using protective equipment or um, doing all kinds of things to to prevent the risk. However, you have to kind of, you have to have an appreciation for what the risk is. And I think you know, particularly with all of the nutrition stuff that we've been doing, uh, which is very thematically similar. um, A lot of people uh, think that they have a good understanding of it, but often they devote a lot of mental energy to avoiding minor risks um, and very little mental energy to uh, uh, avoiding major risks. And it's best to kind of, I think... Um, a lot of it comes down to better quantifying the risks, uh, but mm-hmm. people should know. And, and some of it is, um, you know, about having regulations that require companies to ensure that the risks are accurately and prominently, you know, as the case uh, requires, uh, disclosed to the users or anybody that would be exposed to it.
0: I have a very close dietitian friend who always says that we both are avid mountain bikers, and my mountain bike comes with from the box so if I build it straight up almost 172 various warnings about how I'm going to hurt myself on this thing and she's like some dyes which are really bad for you that are in jellos and all bunch of things come with zero but we you know and she said like there's as you say there's not that scaled risk of things that can hurt you we kind of think about like in a linear line but we don't think about the other things because they're just not sort of talked about or talked about in hushed tones so
1: yeah, it's um it's strange to me, and I think there's a perception that um there's a perception in the public that the government has got this, and they're doing a very careful, methodical approach to assessing risks. Um, and I um I remember um, attending a presentation three or four years ago, maybe or maybe a little bit longer uh, ago than that about um the um uh, the risk profile of lead. Mm. Um, and the person from Health Canada w- was um, uh, was discussing their review of the literature. Didn't mention some major studies that had been published recently. Systematic reviews of the literature. I mean, these are these. Um, it's an approach to uh, reviewing previously published research where you kind of uh, decide the search terms in advance, and you have criteria for evaluating all of the studies, but you basically look at everything so that you can kind of, kind of complete picture of um, the the risk from all of the published studies, published in scientific journals. And uh, the person didn't make any reference to this very large uh, systematic review of the literature that had done kind of a meta-analysis, which is kind of a, a risk estimate based on compiling all of the uh, the data from all the different studies. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you haven't referred to this. Uh, like, how did you find these studies, you know? And there wasn't really an answer for that. And I uh, I, I know with pesticides, there is a strong tendency on the part of the government to just look at the evidence that's provided to them by the companies that want to get regulatory approval, which mm-hmm. seems to me to be kind of absurdly one-sided, you know. Uh, the companies want to get approval, so they're maybe going to be less likely to supply um, studies that, you know, raise alarm bells about their their product. Um, anyway, so I found the same was true of lead. And uh, and if you look at um, um, uh, a database on the Health Canada's website, you can see that lead is one of the major uh, contributors to uh, adverse health incomes, uh, particularly death uh, worldwide. Um, And it's funny because, well, it's not
0: funny, but lead has been all over my social media pages for like the last two weeks straight because uh, uh, some research scientists who are of millennial age, as they had to say, basically said like they're trying to understand why the boomer generation is so hostile towards a lot of things. And then like, if you put up the amount of lead exposure that that generation was put to and then their age and you kind of track what are the outcomes of lead poisoning over a long time, it kind of fits the profile of that current generation slide. And you're just like, Oh man, even like stuff like that, you that you don't think of because my dad's that age. And I'm like, that's why he's so you know getting grumpier as he gets on or something
1: like that so (laughs) yeah well it's hard to i mean you don't want to pin everything on lead but
0: uh, no but it was like to have lead come up on tiktok as a thing right like you don't see that too often like lead poisoning
1: Oh yeah well i mean the you know with fairness to the older generation they did realize eventually the importance of getting it out of paint and gasoline uh yeah and uh And and, but it does take years to reap the benefits of that, and um, uh, and there is um, because it you know it remains in bone tissue, I guess, for a long time, and uh, but uh, anyway, so it still seems to be a problem. And I and I don't know, I don't think um, Health Canada is um, is still measuring it regularly, it seemed, and all the assessments I've seen of the risk of lead. Um, there were these kind of sporadic studies that were mostly done by university academics and mm. they use different methodologies. And um, it seems strange to me that there wasn't a more kind of deliberate systemic uh, um, effort to, to monitor it. And, uh, uh, and uh, I, I think we should all be a, a little bit concerned about that. And um, there was another, um, a pesticide um, that uh, his, been banned in I think dozens of countries but it's still approved here in Canada Um, and it's one of the things that it's used for is um, is to soak telephone poles um, because it basically stops insects from chewing away at the wood Um, but those are everywhere you know and um, I I mean they're throughout the communities they're in the you know countryside along the highways and everything and I yeah yeah i d- i don't know if it's um if it's uh, a real risk in reality i mean it may be that it's very stable and uh, but um to to anyway it just i think it's the the nice thing about the chemical management plan in the theory anyway is that it's an effort to kind of comprehensively evaluate all of these risks i just wish that they had, were more transparent about the data that they use for it and and that i wish they did systematic reviews of the literature which they don't appear to do
0: yeah and i think that really blends into because we're sort of dancing around what what is something you wish sort of canadians knew about chemicals and their impact on canadians as a whole or the environment we're a part of or as you you know say the food we eat um what is something that you just wish was like concretely built into sort of every canadian adult canadian's head
1: yeah. Well, um, I mean, I guess the, I, I think we have to have a kind of like adult conversation about the relative risks of all these chemicals, not just the acute risks, um, uh, you know, if you're exposed and then you can get sick immediately, but some of them, the chronic risks, uh, which are a little bit harder to track. Um, and uh, and the, the, the types of, um, I guess, modalities of exposure, like lots mm-hmm. of uh, people are exposed to risk through the jobs that they do, like if you're a farmer and you're using pesticides, or if you're a, a mechanic and you're exposed to pesticides and brake linings, or whatever, um, you uh, you have different concerns. And I and I think a lot of the excitement about um, better controlling the risks from pesticides seems to be coming from uh, the environmental movement, but um, and not so much from the public health community, although it seems to me that the public health risk is kind of an important uh, marker of risk to the environment, too. Um, and uh, and I, I, I can't remember exactly how it breaks down, but it's a pretty significant uh, portion of the risks estimated by a uh, risk of death attributable to chemicals estimated by the World Health Organization are through um, uh, occupational exposures. And I don't know if it's incumbent on, you know, environmental groups to kind of reach out to labor organizations to try to get them thinking more about these kinds of risks and um, sharing notes with them, for instance. Um, and it and maybe there's an opportunity for the uh, public health people to have more conversations with the environmental environmental activists, and um, it's mm. all about kind of protecting health and the environment uh, from needless exposure to, to chemicals um, i i was um you know preparing for this i i've often been kind of stymied by the fact that technically almost everything is a chemical you know like uh, a chemical is basically defined as um a substance with a defined composition um and so technically water is a chemical um, and so in a way we have to kind of come up with a definition of chemical that kind of makes sense I mean we're, we're concerned about potentially harmful chemicals um, and we have to come up with a definition that makes sense which would have to incorporate you know this, this sort of twin aspect about occupational exposures and then environmental exposures and you know, household exposures or whatever. And it it differs a lot from country to country. I mean, it's very different uh, um, in uh, low-income countries compared to to high-income countries like Canada. But um, there's some lessons to learn from both types of places too.
0: Uh, Your sort of anecdote there reminded me of my third year organic chemistry prof who always basically started off all of our labs, because at various points, we could make anything from meth to like uh, a gas that's going to kill everyone in the lab. So he was always cognizantly aware of trying not to kill his 30 year students. Uh And he would say, everything on the periodic table is going to kill you. It's just the uh, expectation of how much right. And he would always just basically say, similar to what you were saying, it doesn't matter if it's water or if it's uranium enough water will kill you. Enough uranium will kill you. It's just we have to be able to talk about the amount, right? And if he would die on that hill saying like every chemical should be approached from that aspect, right? It doesn't matter if it's water to uranium. If we have the conversations that's just it's the amount you have to be exposed to, it makes everything much simpler. Again, Mm -hmm. a tenured PhD prof who's been teaching chemistry for 55 years at that point in time, but still it's that point, right? Like everything has some breaking point that it will have an impact. Right. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well um, it is true. I mean, you, you can't die from consuming too much water um, mostly because it interferes with the other chemicals that dilutes the other chemicals yeah. in your body too much, but uh, but there are um, uh, it's very hard to drink that much water. Like you really have to try very hard to drink that much water and the um uh the risk there was an instance of um i don't know if you remember this a few years ago there was a u.s radio station that was having a contest for who could drink yeah, the, most, the water most water or whatever yeah and someone basically died while she was talking to the host uh online she drank eight liters of water or something seed like that and um maybe much more i don't know and um anyway um so yeah but you can you can get kind of caught up in the trivialities of it if you say that uh, kind of anything is a chemical and you have to be careful about everything that yeah uh, uh, it's it can be kind of missing the point and, and and the um you know the simple fact is that uh it's extremely rare in canada for people to dro- die from drinking too much water um, i mean if it's one person a year i'd be surprised that that's high Um, it's, it's other, it's the asbestos and the lead and uh, a few other chemicals. Yeah. I Um,
0: think he, his more was being a sarcastic prop around just the elements of the periodic table. Like, I mean, yeah, hydrogen is going to take you down pretty quickly, but
1: yeah. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, In in, in the (laughs) pharmaceutical drugs, they refer to as the dose response curve, um,
0: Oh, yeah. Oh. The, the dose is very important. Uh, You're giving me flashback to biochemistry now. I and I tried to lock that part of my life away into <laughs> a dark place that it would never come forward again. Um, So that, that kind of leads into where do you hope Canada ends up? Like, how do we deal with chemicals in the country? Like, if you had a magic wand or were in charge of sort of the government for a day and you could sort of change how we're dealing with chemicals in the country, how would you approach it?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, certainly something has to be done about the conflict of interest safeguards. I I really do feel that uh, a lot of the challenges that the government has in regulating chemicals in a responsive way has to do with the large amount of power that the big chemical companies uh, have and the relatively minuscule power that environmental and public health groups have. Even just to kind of keep track of the 5,000 chemicals. Uh, mm. I mean, um, if you're, you know, if you run a multi million or billion dollar chemical company and you, you know, sell a couple of dozen of them, it's easy to figure out what the science is and, you know, how they're regulated. You're highly motivated to do that. But um, if you're working for a small environmental or public health organization and, you're not even really sure where to begin uh, with, you know, like maybe you haven't even seen the World Health Organization database and um, and the government doesn't um, collect or report accurate information about how much certain chemicals are, you know, sold in Canada, for instance, or how much they're manufactured and the methods that they're transported by, you know, by train or whatever. Um, it can be hard to get a, get a handle on all of that. And uh, so the conflicts of interest safeguards is a major part of it. Um, and the just better data about this. Um, I know like, for instance, um, you mentioned the food dyes. Uh, in the United States is a requirement that uh, companies that manufacture food dyes have to report the amounts of them that they sell um, in pounds uh, per year and that's a pretty good uh, indication and I think they have to distinguish um, like for local uh, consumption or export but that's a pretty useful um, indication of how much on at least on average how much they're being consumed in the population Um, and by contrast I don't know anything about non-pesticide chemicals Um, I've been asking questions about that but uh, I haven't heard any answers yet but in the case of pesticides um, the regulations pursuant to the Pest Control Products Act, which is a, a law made by Parliament, um, require uh, Health Canada to collect information about the amount of pesticides that are um, sold in Canada, like mostly to farmers and other people that uh, other people that use them. But um, Health Canada has, for like since two 2000- thousand. Seven basically reported that information uh, in ranges. So you now I can't remember precisely what the ranges are, but like for instance, with um, uh, with glyphosate, I think the range was that, uh, um, and almost every year the amount of um, glyphosate sold in Canada was reported basically as the same amount. Because it was in a range between, I five hundred thousand and a million ki- uh, kilograms per year. Uh, I might have the numbers wrong on that. I should have checked that before I answered the question. But <laughs> but anyway, it was the range was so wide that there was only one year when it exceeded that. But you could see if you looked at it, the range was so wide that there was a steady increase over the entire period. And it was a very large amount, uh, you know, say per capita. Like I, I think we calculated once that um over a lifetime of of like um, 70 years which is um that's the the metric that you use for calculating cancer risk like so it's lifetime exposure um over a lifetime the per capita um use of that pesticide worked out to approximately half of an adult's body weight you know so it was like 40 kilograms of uh uh, of glyphosate used if you add it up for 70 years uh, on crops in Canada which just seems like a lot um, mm. considering that um, I, I think it's like a tablespoon is, uh, um, can, or maybe slightly more than a tablespoon, maybe it's a half a cup or something will kill you um, if you drink it it kill you instantly and that's not to say anything about the chronic exposures to it over time if you if you uh, are um you know spreading it through a field to get rid of weeds so uh so that basic um element of information about how much of it is really being used in a country is just not available for most uh, chemicals and that seems to me to be a fundamental problem uh i don't even know if if the government knows that if they know it, they're not sharing it um and uh and it's available in other countries um so mm. that's you know another kind of major problem um, and it, there um, there is a um a technique for kind of classifying um, uh, chemicals according to their risk called ld50 the lethal dose 50. so it's the amount they use they um, calculate these for, with laboratory animals so like they take mice and um, they expose them to different amounts of a chemical and when they hit the amount that kills half of them almost instantly like within a day or two um, then that's called the ld50 and it's a kind of an indication of how toxic the chemical is and so the smaller amount of exposure uh, to achieve this kind of grisly objective um, the uh, the more toxic the chemical is um, and so you can relatively easily find those LD50s for a lot of chemicals just by searching the internet. Um, uh, research scientists publish that kind of information. It's a little bit different depending on the laboratory animal. Uh, but we don't have a good, reliable database, I think even internationally, for um, the the risk of long-term exposure, like cancer, often for chemicals. Um, it can take many years uh, to uh, for the the risk of increased risk of cancer to be realized. Some it's a shorter, like apparently, uh, according to a U.S. government source, for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and exposure to um, glyphosate, it can be as short as two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for lots of them, like for tobacco consumption and all the chemicals in that, uh, it's it's often ten or more years before you see the effects of it on uh, cancer risk and you, and so, you do
0: see that like my sister at 19 had type two hodgkin non-hodgkin's lymphoma cancer and i mean like she was quite literally an elite ballerina going to winnipeg right so like she, she was in the top form non-smoker any of that kind of stuff and her um her team basically said it was either a virus she picked up from an ex-boyfriend who triggered it like they or it was someone in the neighborhood spraying because I'm old enough when I was alive during what I always call the transition out of where everyone sprayed their front lawns incessantly to where municipalities slowly sort of rolling back what chemicals you can put on your lawn uh,
1: yeah
0: and yeah. they said it could have been someone just having you know a hub of something from the 80s that they put all over their front lawn and Susan went right through it.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, I went to Cub Camp and uh we had um, you know, we we were opening up the camp for the for the summer, the first uh group, and the mosquitoes were terrible. Mm. And one of the leaders um went out and got some DDT <laughs> and he was spraying it all over the field. Yeah. And we all of us little kids, we were so excited to to not be bitten by mosquitoes anymore, that we were kind of running through the smoke giddily, you know, hoping yeah. to kill all the mosquitoes. And I mean, you know, maybe my days are already numbered now. I don't know. Um, but, you know, that's all about kind of knowing what the risks are and uh, and I, I um, it's a real challenge um, uh, to sometimes to figure out what these risks are, um, are from the scientific literature Um, And certainly, if governments don't do systematic reviews of the literature, um, then it's not going to help us get closer to these answers. Mm -hmm.
0: And that kind of leads into the last question. Is there anything I missed that you would like to talk about around the chemical management plan or something that you think is also pressing that these questions didn't cover?
1: No, I just, I mean, I I do think it would be, uh, I think there should be more public awareness about what's going on with these and the approaches that the government takes and um you know i i'm I'm kind of new to this um part of um government regulations as i said it mostly focused on nutrition issues Um, and sometimes it takes kind of like an outsider to see what seems like it's terribly wrong with the system sometimes people that have been involved in it from the very beginning kind of grow accustomed to Showing up the meetings and you know discussing whatever's on the agenda, and um, but I I do think that the public would be surprised at um, like just to illustrate in the case of approving a reapproving glyphosate uh, the pesticide, um, Health Canada basically hadn't done a scientific review of the evidence, the health and environmental evidence in 39 years mm-hmm. and done a full review. And when it was approved initially in 1976, um, I think there would only been one um, study that was uh, published in a peer review journal. And that's typical of new um, substances because it's really, you know, it's the company that makes it's been doing all the testing and they haven't been publishing it. but. Um, between 1976 and like 2017, there have been like 15,000 studies published. And um, as best I could tell, reviewing the entire record of uh, Health Canada's Pest Management Regulatory Authority, they had ignored 96% of those studies. Um, and it seemed mainly because the industry um, applicants for renewal didn't mention them. And the uh, my strong impression is that a lot of those studies raised concerns about uh, adverse health risks and environmental risks. Um, and I, Canada doesn't have a way of identifying those. Uh, it's just too reliant on the, the uh, manufacturers who want the approval to be granted.
0: Mm, yeah. That, and that's something, at least my time working with the DMP has become to sort of realizations out of it where, you know, you'd, as you said, you think it's a back army of people watching it, and it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you're, it, yeah, it can get a bit terrifying, as I always say. Like it's almost looking over the edge of a black hole. You're like, oh, there's a lot more down here than I ever thought
1: possible. Yeah. Well, you have to kind of wonder like, they, I mean, one thing they've been very open about is there are approximately 5,000 chemicals on this list. And, I think there might be 20 staff in the federal government that's responsible for evaluating yeah. all of them. And, you know, it uh, doesn't seem like a lot of people. Uh, and it, it it seems to me that if you were in that position, that you'd be very eager to figure out a way of very efficiently um, assessing the risk and maybe collaborating with other countries. Um, and I just don't see evidence of that.
0: Um, you know, yeah. And a lot of it, I think, too, comes down to a lot of the makeup even outside of this department but in ge- like if we were to paint with the broadest stroke brush a lot of people working within especially the federal government are policy focused background not in this case science you know what i mean like it
1: yeah
0: it would be like having the people in charge of i don't know the supreme court of canada all be my background biochemistry yeah sure we can be like well that looks like a law that should be but we don't understand the fine points of it and i think that's where especially at the federal level to get themselves in trouble a lot of time is it's experts in policy development but not experts in the science of whatever whether it's chemicals food you name it right so
1: yeah well to me that's um <sighs> i don't want to say it's no excuse but they no. they they ought to recognize if they are experts in policy, that they ought to recognize the need to um uh to figure out how to evaluate and classify all of the scientific mm-hmm. data and um, the one of the interesting so i'm a lawyer you know working for a health science organization but um you know, when We have a similar kind of uh, issue in the law, like it's there's all of these decisions that have been made by judges and all the statutes and everything, and if you want to try to convince a judge to make a decision in a certain way, um, you have to look at what other judges uh, have written, but the great thing about that is that there's a classification system, right, and if, if it's a decision in Ontario, then you're most concerned about what the Ontario judges said, and you're more concerned about the Supreme Court of Canada or the Ontario Court of Appeals, then um than lower courts or courts from other provinces um, but in um in science, there's no real pecking order that way. I mean, there are certain journals that are considered more reputable or uh, or influential, but basically it's supposed to be about the quality of the studies and um, I, uh, I I don't um, i, I I worry that they haven't kind of reconciled um, themselves with that fact and it doesn't seem like for instance they had a kind of um they employ a system for looking at the methodology in a kind of comprehensive way uh it just seems like it was just reading whatever was presented to them and the one closing thing I would want to say is that I did I did check the the number about the number of kilograms of Uh, of glyphosate because I wasn't sure about the number before it. I don't, uh, so in in 2017, it was um, 56 million kilograms, you know, uh, used in Canada. And I'm just going to see if I can find the range uh, that uh, shouldn't take very long. Um, The range that they have to report it uh, is, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm googling well, here. Don't worry at all. I, 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 I don't want to take I don't want to take too much time. But um, the I'm googling through a very large document, though. Uh, well, I can't really find it. it uh, it's a it's a broad range just say it's a broad range and I can't remember what it is, but it it was, it was so broad. It was very uninformative. Um, and that's, I'll, I'll
0: just track it down and put it in the show notes so people can get terrified as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I it, think it's, Ill- I think it's illegal actually, because the, I remember when those regulations came into force, I had to, um, it was, it was um, before they're kind of proactively published on the internet. So I had to go to a library to get them and the, um, uh, the, the explanation that, uh, the government of Canada provided for collecting this information from companies was to provide it to the public. And the only, uh, limitation that they wanted to make is they didn't want to give brand names because that would be proprietary sort of confidential business information. Uh, but there was no, um, they didn't express any concern at the time about, uh, not giving precise amounts. And that was something they decided to do later, presumably as a result of pressure from industry. And they'd never really been challenged on it. Mm. Um, So,
0: It's it's complicated. Now, as always, after these podcasts, I'm slightly more terrified than I began. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk about the CMP. And as one of the relative new faces around the table, it's always refreshing to take A different look at it as one of the other people I interviewed has been involved in the process for almost 20 years so different volumes and I'm going to include all your information um, in the show notes in terms of where you're working but if anyone has any questions they can go through my email address that will be available and I'll make sure to pass them along and I want to say thank you very much again for taking the time to chat with us my pleasure thanks Andrew